The thing you've always suspected about yourself the minute you become a tourist is true. A tourist is an ugly human being. You are not an ugly person all the time. You are not an ugly person ordinarily. You are not an ugly person day to day. From day to day, you are a nice person. From day to day, all the people who are supposed to love you, on the whole, do. From day to day, as you walk down a busy street in the large and modern and prosperous city in which you work and live. As your plane descends to land, you might say, what a beautiful island Antigua is. More beautiful than any of the other islands you have seen. And they were very beautiful, but they were much too green, much too lush with vegetation, which indicated to you, the tourists, that they got quite a bit of rainfall. And rain is the very thing that you, just now, do not want, for you were thinking of the hard and cold and dark and long days you spent working in North America, or worse, Europe, earning some money so that you could stay in this place where the sun always shines and where the climate is deliciously hot and dry for the four to ten days you are going to be staying there. And since you are on your holiday, since you are a tourist, the thought of what it might be like for someone who had to live day in, day out, in a place that suffers constantly from drought and so has to watch carefully every drop of fresh water used, while at the same time surrounded by a sea and an ocean, must never cross your mind. You see yourself taking a walk on that beach. You see yourself meeting new people, only they are new in a very limited way, for they are people just like you. You see yourself eating some delicious locally grown food. You see yourself, you see yourself. You must not wonder what exactly happened to the contents of your lavatory when you flushed it. You must not wonder where your bath water went when you pulled out the stopper. You must not wonder what happened when you brushed your teeth. Oh, it might all end up in the water you are thinking of taking a swim in. The contents of your lavatory might, just might, graze gently against your ankle as you wade carefree in the water. For you see, in Antigua, there is no proper sewage disposal system, but the Caribbean Sea is very big, and the Atlantic Ocean is even bigger. It would amaze even you to know the number of black slaves this ocean has swallowed up. There is a world of something in this, but I can't go into it now. La 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 You are now tuned in to the Unwind the Line podcast from Red Feather Studios. I'm your host, Ali Pham, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Aviv Rao. Hey y'all! And Justin Campos. So those quotes come from um, a small place by Jamaica Kincaid, and we decided to include those because all of they speak for themselves, right? Yeah, and they're really relevant to the topic of this episode, which is tourism, kind of modern day tourism. Um, And yeah, those quotes are 
in the first section of this book, A Small Place, which really gives a nuanced picture of tourism on the island of Antigua. Amazing book, we totally recommend it. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll, um, we'll just kind of outline what we're doing for this episode a little bit. Yeah, so we are now going to hear from a professor of ours who we love and respect very much. Um, her name is Professor Karen Chetty and she works on a lot of different historical materialist American studies and also looks at tourism, at colonialism, um, and in, embeds those in kind of like a materialist uh, grounding. Yeah, um, I took a class with her that really was, I think, the inspiration for this episode. Um, which was, the class was called Caribbean Writers, but we spent the whole first section of the course talking about tourism. We read A Small Place, like, situated modern day tourism within a colonial yeah. history. Exactly. Um, and I think mm-hmm. often tourism gets divorced from that as like, mm-hmm. oh, this big, great industry, um, mm-hmm. and it's so, so, so tied up in that. Exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so Professor Cramchetti will be right on, and then after her we have a friend of ours. Yeah, we have a friend of ours, a recent graduate from Wesleyan, Patrique. Uh, she's going to give her own personal first-hand account of growing up outside of Kingston, Jamaica. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's it. Um, Professor Karen Shetty, welcome, welcome, welcome. One of the things I want to uh, really stress is that if it's always a matter of people from one place making contact with people from another place, it's not something that's a characteristic that's new. In fact, it has existed for as long as we know and probably before we know also. So, And it's not from the West to the non-West to the rest. There have always been people traveling from here to there. So I want to um, ask you to think of uh, characters like, for instance, Fa Xian, who is traveling from China to India between 399 and 414, mm. right? You want to think also then of someone like uh, Marco Polo, mm. who is 13th century. He's traveling from Venice to what is now close to Beijing, mm. and he actually lives in Xanadu, works for Kublai Khan, when the descendants of Genghis gone, and then when he he and his relatives come back, they bring with them lots and lots of goods, trade goods. Mm-hmm. And you want to really think of this as the beginning of that great infusion, pumping money, right, yeah. into into Europe. After that, you also want to think of someone like Ibn Battuta, you know, who's born in Morocco and travels a, a very large, widespread Muslim homeland. Right? So this is a very religiously based homeland, and it goes from West Africa, the North Atlantic, the Middle East, India to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you think about these three, mm-hmm. and then you add to them the European explorers that we mm-hmm. more commonly think of as at the yeah. beginning of this yeah. kind of global exchange of cultures, uh, Columbus 1492, Vasco da Gama 1497, going to to India, Magellan, you know, completing the first to mm-hmm. circumnavigate the the globe, or even see the that there's travel for any number of specific reasons. Mm-hmm. And so there's two things that I wanted us to think about. Yeah. One is, what are the purposes for travel? Mm-hmm. Trade, conquest, um, commodities, which are part of trade. Yeah. Conquest, of course, leads us into colonialism, imperialism, and tra- but you also have the idea of religion. And this, 
on the one hand, then we, we can call this a pilgrimage, mm. right? Mm. We can also call it at a more secular level, education. Right? Mm. So if you want to think about profit motives, the educational motive and the spiritual motive, that all seems to be built into this idea mm. of travel. Two Maybe things then that you want to think of. One is that you're always moving um, between the realms of the familiar and the strange, mm. right? Yeah. Of what is known and what is unknown. Yeah. And are you attempting to make the unknown, the dissimilar, the unfamiliar into what is known? And how mm. do you do that, mm. right? Or are you instead traveling always as Ibn Battuta did, mm. right? In the realm of the familiar, right? And so w that ties in, I think, in very interesting ways to the notions of motives and yeah. of mm. how you travel. You know, are you seeking the alien? Are you seeking the familiar yeah. right, in what is otherwise uh, not known to you? Another then um, concept that, that's really important to think about, I, mm -hmm. I think, is is it necessary for things to be written down? Mm -hmm. Or where, at what point does it move from being just travel that is a source of information about other places? Because that's mm -hmm. what Ibn Battuta was right. and and Marco Polo leave and give to us? Right, exactly. Or is it just a matter of personal and individualized experience, which is what tourism then becomes, mm. right? So you can move from that, that notion of being a conduit of knowledge, an individual traveling alone, um, and serving as a sole voice, bringing knowledge about the unfamiliar, about yeah. the unknown to masses. Or is it just something that everyone is supposed to do it, and that's what the tourist then becomes. Third, when do you think the shift kind of happened into yeah, it becoming yeah. this more like personal, doing it for my education yeah. so that I can have this experience? Yeah. Like, when do you think that that's shift exactly to that's a really important definitional shift. Yeah, I would like to direct our attention to what happens you know, in the later parts of the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. right? That is the idea of the, the Grand Tour. It was kind of this expected, like, yeah. journey to, like, yeah. complete your education as a man. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where you go out and see the world as it is. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like a bar mitzvah, except <laughs> not. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how this has almost, like, translated a bit today in, like, study abroad. Yes, totally. Exactly. Yeah, kind of yeah. Education. Yeah, exactly. For, like, you're yeah. accredited yeah. with global yeah. citizenship. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh. And you Gosh. want to think then about the grand tour is really very much part of the upper classes, as you mm -hmm. said, and it's a very male experience yeah. at, at that point. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the most interesting books in terms of thinking about it and maybe also parodying it is Lawrence Stern, A Sentimental Journey is the one Oh, yes, about. I read that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea that yeah. one of the things that travel does is that and enlarges your soul. And in fact, yeah. the very it end of it, activates your feelings. It makes you able to feel yeah. intensely and to have, in fact, this kind of grand repertoire of the sentiments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you pray love. No. Oh, God. But that is absolutely. Right. In but the it's unironically that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, unironically, which is too bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> if it had been ironic, it would have been much better. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, so so that idea of travel is good for you, mm -hmm. and it was a kind yeah. of vitamin for the soul. Yeah. Right? is is very much part of this. But there are conditions within a culture 
that are necessary for tourism to happen. And one of them is you've got to have a certain degree of wealth mm -hmm. that is spread around. But there also has to be the idea that leisure time is a good thing. Mm. Right? So this is a kind of conceptual change that yeah. has to happen with the society. That leisure is in fact a necessary, desirable, and justified mm -hmm. substance mm -hmm. for us all. Yeah. And then there have to be ideas conceptually what constitutes leisure and this idea that traveling and seeing things that are unfamiliar to you, yeah. going to a different geographic location, that that somehow both leisure, that is something without a profit making as, a, as an end, and yet, ironically, a great profit to the self. Mm -hmm. right? right. So yeah. something that moves us both in and out of the economic system mm -hmm. of profit into a spiritual system and an educational mm -hmm. system of profit, right? All of these things conceptually have to be in place before tourism as an activity yeah. can really be embedded. Interestingly, those three conditions are, are concurrent mm -hmm. and identical with what happens with the idea of reading. So as the middle classes increase, you get increasing amounts of disposable income with which books can be bought and with and that then decreases the price of books as the price of travel can also be decreased right yeah. as there are more people than engaging in it and the idea of this as a leisure activity mm -hmm. um, and the idea that it's good for you that it's justified in some way and what's interesting is then that reading and travel are both a kind of vicarious experience you enlarge knowledge you enlarge mm -hmm. the self you enlarge your capacity to feel mm -hmm. it's something that we continue to subscribe to, certainly. We talked a little bit about the International Monetary Fund and how it played and continues to play a large role in shaping the economies of more recently independent nations in the Caribbean. Um, and initially, this was really done by shifting the economies yeah. towards banking and tourism. Offshore like banking. Away yeah, exactly. from exactly right. agriculture. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering if you could Hide kind of talk a little go, bit about uh, pay under taxes. the name of economic development. And also a little bit of like legislation. I know we talked about how certain beaches, it was hard for locals to go mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's exactly right. So if you're thinking about um, it, it, the, these terms are, are never satisfactory and they're always offensive, but we have to use them just as pointers of nothing else. The third world or the, the non, the Caribbean mm -hmm. region or um, undeveloping nations, whatever you want to go, the mm. global yeah. south, you know, all of these terms. Um, what you have is uh, uh, the International Monetary Fund does uh, have a hand in their economic development. Mm -hmm. And so that the economic system um, has always been skewed. It's never been kind of allowed to develop naturally. Mm -hmm. It was always distorted yeah. through the, the historical imposition of colonialism and imperialism. But you know, you might think about something, the example maybe of Haiti, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which was such a huge moneymaker, um, becomes the Haitian independence. France imposes a fine right. that mm -hmm. they have to pay back. It takes them until the 20th century. Yeah. to do so. Mm -hmm. It's a huge fine and that's a kind compensation for the loss of lands and labor. Right? Yeah. So that they begin in the negative, right? In mm -hmm. the in the red from the beginning, right? Okay. So that the IMF then mm -hmm. on the is yet another kind of external hand that comes in and determines their the development of that of that nation. 
Well, tourism, one of the things that we learn about it in the Caribbean is that it does not necessarily create economic self-sufficiency for those nations. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, many of the companies and corporations involved in tourism are multinationals. Yeah, yeah. I remember mm -hmm. a statistic that just stuck with from the Gibson's history that we read. <laughs> it was that mm -hmm. a lot of islands, only about 20% of yeah stays on the shore and 80 yeah, percent exactly goes right elsewhere. and i think exactly right people kind of maybe recognize that tourism is problematic in some sense but they're like oh well i'm like really helping the local economy yeah. when i go there <laughs> yeah. so, so that's a it, you know so tourism mm -hmm. then is, is this huge kind of institutionalized economic structure right exactly. that has a cultural face mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's I, I think the problem um, but you know, you might think about something, the example maybe of Falmouth, and this is of course Falmouth in, in Jamaica, right. but what happens in Falmouth, and you know the spectacles that are often staged and put together for tourists, is a kind of refashioning, a reinvention, a redramatization mm -hmm. of days of slavery. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, so, so that you have then the descendants maybe mm -hmm. of slaves acting the parts mm -hmm. of slaves, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is a, a craziness. So I want to um, ask you to think about the way in which the cruise ships will come in. And of course, what you want to think about is this kind of really horrific parallel between the, the slave ships yeah. and the cruise ships. Yeah. It's a kind mm -hmm. of historic craziness. I want to, when we talk about that idea of the gaze, of the touristic gaze, mm -hmm. that, that tourism as an activity then is, you need to think also about then the geographic difference between going to the global north and the global mm -hmm. south, mm -hmm. and what mm -hmm. happens when you go to Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So when you go to Europe, you it is about cultural capital, mm -hmm. about social capital. Yeah. If you go to Europe and you do not see the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> what are you even doing in here? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> then somehow it's you who have been found faulty. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. You have to have seen it. But then that's not sufficient. You have to go from that to, oh yes, I saw that when I was a kid, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna really see what the French people really are like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the desire then to kind of go behind the scenes, yeah. the acknowledgement, yeah. often unarticulated that this, this tourism is a spectacle that has been shaped right. and made for you. And you mm -hmm. want to like go a little bit behind that's it to right. get yeah, this like authentic right. experience <laughs> that you can... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember reading something that was kind of like, you want everything very, almost very curated, but you want this moment where you like get lost in a French street and like are really mm -hmm. hungry and then like come upon a French bakery and have like mm -hmm. the, the most baguette. delicious, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. In a place that no other tourist ever went to. Yeah. yeah. There were only other French people around, mm -hmm. right? So notice me what an ironic thing that is. That Absolutely. Is, right? yeah. So, um, Dean McCannell, 1976, publishes this book called uh, The Tourist, A New Theory of the Leisure Class. And this is kind of a foundational book to read about tourism. One of the things that he says is this is very much about uh, modernity. It's about what it means to be modern. And to be modern, then, is to, is, is to be constantly in a state of anxiety mm. about authenticity, about the real self, you know, about uh, real life. Am I really living? Yeah. Am I really alive? Yeah. Mm. So um, that tourism, then, is absolutely the engagement with this idea about authenticity, about reality, about mm -hmm. truly living in yeah. capital 
how it's like saying um, can the eye see itself if that makes right. sense mm -hmm. you know how can you how can you the tourist see what people are like when there are no tourists around because mm -hmm. your presence itself then distorts mm -hmm. it in, exactly in, in a very significant way yeah. but uh, you might want to think about Western culture as something that um, when it begins to make that distinction between the West and the rest, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. we are civilized, they are not. Yeah. Notice that, that they are not, the they are, are divided into good and bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's the noble savage and then there's the, the, the savage beast. Right. But both then are somehow defined as being in an unselfconscious way, an unaware way that is unmediated mm -hmm. way simply living. They're just good. They're just noble. They don't think about what it means to be noble. They don't have a kind of checklist. You know, do good unto others, don't lie. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They just are. So, uh, so that idea of the rest of the world as unalienated, mm -hmm. but the civilized world, the Western world, as alienated, yeah. it, it, by definition, from the get-go, from the self, means that alienation becomes the source of great angst, of great desire simultaneously mm -hmm. to access those places where there is no alienation whatsoever, but simply authentic life, just being, whether it's savage or noble. If you go to Europe, mm -hmm. and this is where geography again becomes really interesting, you're not seeing either the noble savage or the savage beast, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's more about looking at Old relics of Western culture. Yeah, yeah. It's mm -hmm. a return to the self <laughs> through history. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. So again, if you're seeking the move away from alienation, mm -hmm. ma exactly. modern yeah. alienation. But mm -hmm. notice that it's never enough just to see the civilizational sites. Mm -hmm. There's always that necessity for being, right? Oh, I went to the bakery and I had a brioche that was just. <laughs> You know, right. Untouched by American hands. This grubby American hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if you go to the global south, mm -hmm. what you want is the staging. Exactly. <laughs> which is yeah. just the opposite. You want yeah. the performance. You yeah. want the performance. Yeah. Because behind the scenes, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. see modernity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The tourist itself is a commodity. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it that that is potentially yeah. money. And the experience I feel is also commodified. It's something yeah. that they consume. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely right. So yeah. both they're both commodities. Yeah. Um, you yourself then are something very precious when mm -hmm. you travel. Yeah. Right? yeah. It sort of makes me think about um, I've read a lot of things like that talk about sort of like how institutions kind of like that are insular, um, be they, you know, universities or um, neighborhoods or what have you, sort of, like, feminize the subject on the inside, so to speak, by painting the other as, like, this, like, racialized masculine threat. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about the ways that, like, the tourist resort, like, the all-inclusive resort, the gated yeah. mm -hmm. resort um, sort Club of feminizes. Man. Exactly, yeah. like, feminizes the people inside and sees them all as, like, a body that cannot be sort of like cannot have interaction with the other yeah. and the other is always constituted as like a racialized masculinized body mm -hmm. um and that yeah. feels particularly pertinent when we're talking about these caribbean examples about jamaica about yeah. the dominican republic about all these places like that is the sort of language that people use as mm -hmm. if 
there's not that threat in the West. So that's one thing that I wanted to raise. Another is that there is no monolithic West Western tourist or um, a, a person in the place that mm. you're visiting, right? Think of all the enormous variation there is, not just in terms of class, the enormously privileged uh, non-Westerner in the place yeah. that you're visiting, but yeah. also the different kinds of tourists yeah. from the first world. So what happens to the heritage tourist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, what about the non-white tourist? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be treated the same way? Mm -hmm. Is it safe for them to go into yeah. the same place? Because safety remains a, yeah. is a real issue, isn't mm -hmm. it? Right? Will they have the same kind of experience? Mm -hmm. Will going to see the Sistine Chapel yeah. right, be the same mm -hmm. experience? Mm -hmm. If not, how, what, how do you control that? <laughs> Can you control it and yeah. should you control it? Right? Yeah. Um, that, so that, that's another thing I want to bring up. And the, um, they're very. You asked the question. What's the responsibility of the tourist? Yes, I feel like you yeah. posed that to us all, every yeah. other class, <laughs> and every class I feel like I don't know. Yeah. No, but I mean, do you have a responsibility to where you go? I think that you have a um, responsibility to, to know what it is you're buying. There, there is a, a, a legitimate place for the spa. Mm -hmm. And if that spa has to be in Jamaica, <laughs> know that you're still going to a spa. You do also have a responsibility not to lie and then say that you've been to Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, you look a little guilty. Have you done that? No, no never. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with enjoying beautiful places, right? But you can be clear about it, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you do have a responsibility, I think, not to cause damage. Exactly. Yeah, we were talking a little bit at dinner the other day. We were looking up some stats, but like even environmental damage, especially. Yeah. We decided cruise ships should be abolished. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, first order of business, abolish yeah. all cruise ships. They're nasty. Environmental but degradation. Yeah, completely. Just, like, with these va like these luxury vacations, specifically mm -hmm. looking at like how people take maybe even longer showers than they usually would or just like be excessively wasteful because they're yeah. like, this is my week to like yeah. not care and yeah. like yeah. not feel responsible. So there is that moral responsibility. Yeah. Well, also, you can do that here. Yeah. <laughs> so do it here. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. do it in your own country mm -hmm. where you may not be endangering quite as many people mm -hmm. or quite as badly or... <laughs> Or at least you have to live with the results rather than you just have leave to live them with the results. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So no, you're not entitled to mm -hmm. be disregarding of other people's welfare. Mm -hmm. So there are ways and ways of being a tourist. I think that's what it always comes down to. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to be to travel morally? I think I think there mm -hmm. are. Keeping um, Professor Karim Chetty's question that she posed in mind. I guess now we're thinking, is there a way to do this morally, um, to travel morally, especially in the Caribbean, especially in spaces that like were colonized and have a history of colonialism? Um, but Especially if you're coming from a country that is a is colonizer. Like colonizing power. Exactly. A hundred percent. And I guess that is a really important question and obviously one that we don't have the expertise to answer. Yeah. Uh, and 
few seem to. True. <laughs> but so we're not gonna. <laughs> we're gonna shift gears. So we're gears. not even gonna try. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I think uh, a, a way to approach this is to kind of keep in mind and think about how our own travel affects um, people who actually live in these countries that mm-hmm. we're visiting. I think that's uh, a way that like we are able yeah. to to think about this. Exactly. Understanding the harms on the ground goes part and parcel with um, understanding the structural mm-hmm. issue. And I think that Professor Karim Chetty did an amazing job of getting at the structural nature and mm-hmm. giving us Definitely. the historical context to understand the conditions out of which travel arose and the link between that sort of travel and like the conquest that underlied it and mm-hmm. even Definitely. like a family vacation today. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, we're going to shift gears and now talk to Patrick. Okay, yeah. So our friend Patrick, I think, is going to provide a really valuable perspective. Um, she grew up in a more rural area in Jamaica and then now she's since graduated but um, was a college student at an American university. And so I think she's got some really valuable insight. Uh, yeah, so let's get to it. I'm Jamaican, um, but I actually was born in Florida, which is very interesting because I have never lived in Florida. I think I probably was just born and my parents lived with me. Like, uh, okay. My parents are Jamaican, so it's just a wild coincidence that I... <laughs> a brief moment your yeah. mom spent in Florida. I, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know what happened there, um, but definitely lived in Jamaica my whole life and I lived in the rural parts of Jamaica which was not used to city life at all literally have chickens in my backyard Mm. tilapia we raise our own tilapia goats all kind of things and it's so do you come into contact with tourists a lot or not so much that is probably never um I think most of the tourist activity is isolated to the north coast of Jamaica or or not even the North Coast, specifically resorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of Jamaicans who don't come into contact with tours because the government does a really poor job of like connecting tourism to local industry. So a lot of local businesses don't benefit from mm-hmm. tourism at all. Um, recently, they constructed this huge highway that totally bypassed um, my rural town <laughs> to get to the north coast so usually people would like stop for jerk chicken or jerk pork or something but now those businesses are completely failing because the highway bypasses them because it's a quicker way to get to the resorts in Ocho Rios, Montego Bay or whatever mm-hmm. from Kingston so they fly into Kingston and then straight shots on the highway to Montego Bay Resort locked up there and then they leave. <laughs> Do you think there's kind of like a typical tourist that comes to Jamaica that's kind of like easy for you to pick out or not really? It depends. I feel like if you're talking from what nations, I feel like a lot of Americans mm-hmm. from the Northeast vacation in Jamaica yeah. and the Caribbean at large, a lot of people from like England and like that that area of Europe come Um but I think a lot of families, a lot of people who are couples who are coming for honeymoons and stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I do go to the North Coast and if I go to a resort, that's the type of people I see. If they're not really looking for a rural adventure, they yeah. just kind of want to keep the kids occupied. Mm-hmm. And then the couples want to take 
cute pictures and just like enjoy sitting on the beach on birdie yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah so do you think it matters to them like that it's jamaica or that it's just like a beach vacation um that's a very good question because the beaches are an important mm-hmm. part of jamaica definitely they are like phenomenal beautiful and i I think that lure is really real because when I go to the beach, I'm so inspired. I'm like, I wish I did this more often. And I think I should point that out. The average Jamaican goes to the beach like once a year or never. Mm -hmm. It's just so inaccessible and it's just not, if you don't like work at a resort, you're not going to see the beach because you work in like a city or in a rural business. So the access is not there but I think like they come for the experience of a good Jamaican scenery and it really is beautiful mm-hmm. so I think they're they're completely like coming for the Jamaican experience mm-hmm. but uh, they're not seeing the whole picture right. which they're is problematic a little bit definitely yeah because I was doing a little bit of research for this and I read um the study followed a carload of local Jamaicans and they like were in search of a beach and they just kept getting like rebuffed from high admission fees or like it was like privately owned so they couldn't get in. Have you kind of had a similar experience at all? Or? Of course. So if you're going to the beach, you have a save up. I'm from a big family. I have three brothers and um, we carry our extended family everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. So even though we drive like a seven-seater car, we can <laughs> fit the tent in there and we're going to the beach and we take the highway and it's just a good experience for the whole family. But it's expensive because... Um, some, you pay by car or by person? So it's per person usually. And okay, public beaches do exist, but they're just either really run down mm-hmm. or you're just not getting that experience that the tourist gets to get. Yeah. And like, so... My parents tried to make it a point to allow us to go for our trip once in a while, but it is very costly for the average Jamaican, and it's out of our way. Yeah. So, so I live in Yorton, Jamaica, which is close to Linstead in St. Catherine, like an hour outside of Kingston. But to get to the beach for us, like any beach north, south, east, west, is at least an hour and a half. Damn. So it's yeah. people make it seem like, oh, you're in Jamaica, you're seeing yeah, palm trees, and you live in a hammock. When you go, what what is kind of the ratio of, like, tourists to... So, usually, it depends on the time of year and also when we decide to go. So, if Mm -hmm. it's, like, a public holiday, a lot of Jamaican natives are out on the beach. Mm -hmm. They come in bus loads. (laughs) And that is the day my family does not go. We do not go on those (laughs) days because the beach is filled with people of all walks of life but mainly those people who like don't see the beach in like five years and they're just excited they cook their own fried chicken and mm-hmm. they bring it to the beach and it's just so much fun but it's just i like a quiet beach mm-hmm. but if when we go on the in the quiet times when like there's not a public holiday and people are working it's like mainly tourists so mm-hmm. we're probably one of three families that are actually native to Jamaica which is fine but I feel like the tourists they're kind of just doing their own thing and they interact with you but more in a stereotypical way you know what I'm saying like not trying to get to know you but like say Wagwan or like trying to generalize Jamaican culture, not really trying to get to know you. Right. I think I think me coming from America, like now mm-hmm. when I'm on the beach and I see tourists, we have more to talk about because right. where you, you go from? to school oh, here. Yeah, yeah. Like my parents would ask, if they ask the tourists, "Where are you from?" and I say Wisconsin, my parents say, "Well, where the hell mm-hmm. that is?" So like <laughs> they have nothing to talk about. But yeah, me, I can say, "Oh yeah, I go to Wesley," and they're like, "Oh yes, my daughter goes 
Monster Trinity or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> but very limited interactions, I would say. And sometimes it's because it's true, like a lot of Jamaican people who um, are trying to get like business from these tourists, they're, they hassle them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I see it and it's very uncomfortable for tourists. Mm-hmm. So they try to keep to themselves, stick to the resort staff and like not try to get to know people because you never know if they'd like try to charge you for things that unnecessarily because mm-hmm. Jamaicans I've seen it where people take advantage of tourists and even me if I come home and I like get a little accent maybe <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it happens they try to charge me more for things <laughs> or and I'm like no <laughs> my mother said no you can't keep it we will we will go down to the shop down the street where they will give me Jamaican price because even at some of the beaches they'll have like foreigner price and Jamaican price in your lifetime have you noticed an increase in the amount of tourists that come or because I know recently the minister of tourism there talked about how the country keeps taking in more and more people every year and now the amount of tourists visiting the island each year surpasses the population by one million which was a wild statistic it's like the average Jamaican just doesn't see that Mm -hmm. influx because they're concentrated I believe him that there's an increase in tourism and I'm I bet that's great for Jamaican economy and our GDP at large, and I'm, like, happy about that, but I don't think it's... When you think about the real dynamics there, who owns what, Mm -hmm. it doesn't help our economy that much, which is kind of sad. A lot of it definitely just goes back to Europe and America because a lot of them own the hotels. Um, It's a misleading statistic, and that's just typical of our government, mm -hmm. even when they're advertising these okay, we're putting in these new highways and it's going to make life so much more efficient for the average Jamaican citizen because you're going to have, like, get so fast into Kingston, you don't, your commute times are not, aren't going to be as bad. When you look at the prices, the toll prices, like, the average Jamaican cannot afford that. So what happens is it benefits, like, either the 1% who can afford mm-hmm. it, it's good for, like, the tourists, and then we're just in the same struggle, but an increase, like, where taxes are going to something that we can't even benefit from, you know? Damn, that's super unfair. So to kind of switch the topic a little bit, not to anything really happier, um, per se, but... I think there's this picture of Jamaica as, like, a really dangerous country full of crime, and I think that gets laid up for tourism to push them to be in these like, like resorts and not leave and have this all included resort experience. The thing is like tourists are very, very rarely victims of serious crime and violence, but when they are, it's it blows up in the news. In my opinion, there is some truth to it mm-hmm. because a lot of like horrible crimes are happening in Jamaica and like even my family we see these things on the news and we discuss it and we're like that would have never happened 10 years ago like mm-hmm. our country's in going in a direction that we don't even recognize and it hurts me like really hurts mm-hmm. me because Jamaicans are some of the kindest people I've ever mm-hmm. met like despite like their um some Jamaicans I've met like especially people in my family despite their economic conditions or like financial constraints they're very giving very loving they'll Mm -hmm. share their lives with people and then there's these isolated cases of gang violence within Mm -hmm. inner city communities that's where it is so if you're in a gang like or maybe you're affiliated with gangs or like that's where you should feel the most fearful but honestly on a day-to-day the people around me Mm -hmm. I don't experience 
like see a lot of criminal yeah. activity. I'm not living there anymore, mm-hmm. but obviously from what my family tells me. But it's scary because you see it's on the news and you're yeah. wondering, is it going to come? So, like, I feel like if I was a tourist, I would definitely feel fearful if mm-hmm. I hear these horrible crimes. Yeah. I think it's important to know that they're, they're, more, be, they're associated with gangs. Yeah. And, like, yeah, these resorts will protect you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we have the violence, but I don't think people should look at that and say, okay, that's the big picture Mm -hmm. here. What do you think maybe tours can do to get out of the full-on resort? Or you were saying often approach you or your family with a stereotype vision. What do you think people can do to maybe change that? So instead of resorts, all right, my family used to like go to our resort for like Christmas or something when we were younger. But now there's this culture of like villas. Mm -hmm. So it's more like independent living. You kind of go out and get food you have to leave the the (laughs) you're not getting the hotel's food right and then the person who you can hire somebody who comes in and cook for you who's usually a local and these villas tend to not be in the north coast they're Mm -hmm. like in the south coast so to get a more authentic experience you could have like they have like Jamaican Airbnb, so you're actually connecting with somebody who mm. is running the Airbnb, but is like really Jamaican, right? And like as has opposed to really like Jamaican being a Western-known hotel, exactly. Yeah. And so they're serving you Jamaican food. They can carry you out in the town because. Yeah. I, and you were saying that a lot of the resorts bring in like food from outside Jamaica. It's imported food. It was such a shock. It came on the news one day. They said, um. We we get the hotels get potatoes from the US. I was like, what? Don't we have a, a dying agriculture industry? Yeah. Like farmers are struggling to sell their stuff, and you're telling me we import potatoes? What? Um. So when you drive through the North Coast now, they're like these huge ass walls, and like you can't even see the coast anymore. Wow. Jamaica is changing. Like when I go home all the time, I'm like, where did these buildings come from? This looks mm-hmm. like a prison. Like how, how is how do people enjoy this? But apparently they do. I think because the vision of Jamaica yeah. is the resort. But I'm also they're like, coming there for like a short amount of time, yeah. so it's not like they're you know bothered by oh this building wasn't here five years because they weren't there yeah. either. Yeah. Have you had friends like come from or especially from like West come visit you? No, but my friends are so salty about that. <laughs> yeah, they're I supposed bet. to come during spring break, and I was like, um. I don't know, like, if I can go during this time, but um, if they did come, they'd stay with me mm-hmm. and my family. I, my best friend, Kimberly, she had a friend who came, and just being in the city city, she's like, oh my gosh, I am so shocked because you don't live anywhere near a beach. <laughs> and yeah. people actually go to work, and there's, like, actual, like, industry here. And oh people, <laughs> there's, like, these big buildings, and people are in suits and going to work, and their bus systems. And just, like, this stereotype yeah. image of Jamaica was just not there. And she was like, wow. But this is great. Like, you have a great social life. There are all these bars and all these fun clubs. And it's much smaller, but, like, it's it's a different life that you don't see on TV for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's actually going to do it. Thank you so much for coming on. So that was our friend Patrick. Uh, she did a great job uh, talking about her upbringing and relating it to misconceptions and assumptions people make about the Caribbean and Jamaica, especially. Definitely, and I think it's so interesting to see how embedded all of those assumptions are in colonialism. Um, And that's really what I think 
a lot of our guests have been trying to get at. I think mm-hmm. our, you know, the quotes from the Kincaid book are trying to get at. Yeah, too. Exactly. Kincaid is our guest. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I wish. Um, but, like, that... We can't really look at tourism in a vacuum, but we have to kind of assess the way that people did things like it and the way that people traveled before mm-hmm. and, like, what that looked like and how much of that remains even in, like, a post-colonial, supposedly post-colonial, mm-hmm. slash neo-colonial era yeah. that we're in today. Yeah. And I think our... Yeah. Yeah. Completely <laughs> agree. Very well said. We're a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Unwind the Line. This podcast is produced by me, Allie Pham. Our technical support comes from the one and only Red Feather Studios. Big, big thanks to Ben Saldage. Music in this podcast was produced by Declan Moy Bichau and Gabrielle Bergman. And our theme song was produced by Isaac Price Slade. And if you enjoyed their musical performances on this episode, then you can find more information and more of their music um, on some links on our website. If you like our podcast, honestly, it would be bomb if you could write us a review on iTunes. Uh huh. If you have something to say to us, say it to our email unwind the line podcast at gmail.com. Check out our website if you're bored and want more episode information or if you want to buy some pretty sweet hand-printed tote bags. If you're still listening at this point when the episode is really over, you should... Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Our Instagram handle is... Unwind the Line.